Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey everyone, welcome. Welcome to my home. It is Bitches on Comics. My name is Sarah Century. Come right in. Sit sit down. Have a seat. That's the We just made thing. some vegan sausage. It's oh, yeah. Tempeh. Welcome. Thanks. Um, hi, I'm Essie Flinor. I'm also here today as a, a host of The Bitches, as I prefer to call it. I know. The Bitches. Oh, the Lovely no. Bitches. The Lovely Bitches. <laughs> That's going to be our new <laughs> podcast name eventually, thanks to everyone who's made that happen for us. Yes. Please keep directing your emails to The Lovely Bitches. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to refuse to answer emails that are not sent to The Lovely Bitches. So if you yeah. want to hear from us... Consider yourself <laughs> notified. I am absolutely delighted, absolutely freaking delighted, because we have two kick-ass guests here with us today. Um, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves, because if I do it, I'll just say 10 million words, and then the podcast will be over. So, Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Why don't you introduce yourself for our listeners? Hi, guys. Uh, thanks for inviting me to your parent vegan sausage party. I really <laughs> tried not to make a joke about that, but I just couldn't stop myself. I am co-creator and editor of The Color of Always. Um, I wrote a story in there also. It's actually my comics debut. Really excited for the book to be out in the world and excited to be here. We are so pumped to have you here with us. And Brent, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? My name is Brent Fisher, and I am a co-creator and writer and editor for The Color of Always as well. And I also do uh, little bits and bobs on the side with various anthologies of late. I'm Really happy to be here, and I'm enjoying the sausage party already. The vegan <laughs> sausage party. Appreciate everybody going going out and clarifying because that's the yeah. only sausage party that we're having here today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's the podcast. Close it down. We're done. Right. Everybody go home. God. Oh my god, a vegan sausage party! God, <laughs> sounds like a fork in my vegan sausage. I am done. Uh, yeah i mean i'm pretty you know what i'm not gonna go there um, i was gonna say i'm pretty i'm gonna say it i'm pretty sure my sausage is vegan is all i will say on that that front it's We're certainly plastic now. um yes uh <laughs> and i cut myself off now i have to leave now you all have to just go ahead and do this without making okay, inappropriate at the okay, same bye. time i cut myself off so i don't know who's <laughs> conducting the interview we're like this is really a choose your own adventure as <laughs> so michelle how's your night been so far oh, how are Lord. things <laughs> 
Okay, okay. Whew. All right, so we are here today to talk about The Color of Always, which is fucking incredible. I want to hear... Okay, I know it's not a great question, but my instinct is, tell me everything. But maybe <laughs> we'll start a little bit more specific with how did this project come together? And I mean, like, when did you sit up and go, oh, my God, we have to do this? And then, like, how did it sort of evolve from there? I... Michelle, do you mind if I take this? Go ahead and I'll interrupt you when I decide that you're incorrect. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. I I intend to make sure I'm not, hopefully. Uh, But we've we've got a good practice at this now. Uh, The Color of Always was something that's uh, born out of my mind originally based on a poem that I wrote many years ago. Uh, And I wanted to create a, I wanted to put some good into the world when there was so much bad happening. And I was getting more and more into LGBT uh, advocacy. Um, both as a, on a personal note, but also in terms of unveiling more about my own identity in terms of gender. And I, I, I just wanted to compile. I feel as if there's not a lot of representation, period, in, in comics for LGBTQI plus creators. Uh, and even when there is, that there's, there's, a, there's a veneer of gatekeeping or we've had, you know, we have enough of insert volume here you know, June's over, what have you, anything along those lines. And I wanted to start, I wanted to create a project that not only advanced voices in those spaces, uh, but also had those, had these stories be based on actual personal recollection, recollections. I wanted it to be an educational tool that showed that, you know, we're more than just a qualifier, quantifier. We're more than just uh, a demographic that's expressed in, in, you know, like, here's your gay story to be perfectly blunt. Uh, I wanted it to be personal stories. So there's a representative element to it, but there's also a, a preser- preservational element to it and an educational element to it. Because when so many books, even in the fictional realm, that are being banned, let alone the anecdotal ones, uh, I wanted to find a way of creating a compilation of true stories about love in queer spaces that could inform and educate and contextualize for those that are questioning their own identities, as well as the loved ones of those people to, to humanize and to explain that love has a multitude of permutations. And, and, and I started getting the ball rolling and designed, I started getting a logo designed. And as it slowly became more and more real, my golden retriever qualities in terms of the way my brain's formatted uh, quickly got overwhelmed. And I was part of the Liana Kangas um, discord community, the comic creator and artist and uh, I, one of the people in that community was Michelle. And I said, hey, do you, do you, do you want to do this with me? And it, and it rapidly became Michelle going, oh, my God, what's wrong with you? And like, fix this, coordinate that. And I want to be a part of this. And, and eventually became like instrumental in the execution, design, layout and implementation of almost every element of the process. Uh, I wouldn't be here without Michelle. And I think together we've created something beautiful that we've then kind of brought forward into something even greater that we can get into as the conversation here unfolds. But Michelle, if you wanted to kind of take the baton from there and contextualize it further, I think it's a good time. Yeah, sure. Um, that I am pleased to inform you. It was all you know, very much correct. So <laughs> feeling good. Um, Thank you. Brent, Brent tends <laughs> to like have a little bit different of a perspective only because Brent is so involved in like advocacy and so involved in like their community locally. And I tend to be more of like a, more of like a satellite member of communities in that I, you know, hide in my home, <laughs> don't really talk to people. And 
I think what really drew me to the project, one, being friends with Brent, two, seeing how deeply they needed help. And three, <laughs> just like wanting to get involved in comics and like seeing a really cool way to do that. And one thing that has always really been like my personal mission statement about making these anthologies is to pay gay people to make gay things, which sounds mm-hmm. very productive almost. But part of the point of why I do it is the way that I contribute to the community is to make sure that we're giving good money to talented creators in the community to tell their stories authentically without any form of censorship, any form of having to dumb it down to make it more commercial, allowing people to tell the stories they want to tell, show what they want to show without having to have them make it, you know, quote unquote, more marketable or like, like look a certain way so that it can be published by, you know, a more commercial publisher. So that I found, you know, exciting to try to like bring those opportunities to people. Um, It's always, you know, whether it's about trying to like mentor younger creators or just like allow seasoned creators to tell those authentic stories, like both of those avenues are important to me. And this has also been like, I've been writing my whole life, like poetry and short fiction. And this was my first comic script and really proud of it and excited about more like learning how to lean into visual storytelling. It's been a really great experience for me. And yeah, I guess the process of making this book really taught me a lot about comics industry, about people that create in the community. And I'm just excited to be a part of it. We, uh, we really are creating community here. And I, and I know that wasn't the primary driving factor. You know, it was a multitude of factors, but it was uh, elevating voices, paying people, compensation for, for, for doing, you know, the work and giving creators in queer spaces the, 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 the ability to basically say, I don't necessarily want to tell a story that is intrinsically queer. I just want to tell a story from my truth that may inform elements of it. But I haven't been given that opportunity because it's, it's, a, it's a hard industry to break into generally. But if you're breaking into it asymmetrically, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's even more difficult. And what we've discovered is that there's so much talent out there. And there's so many stories deserving of being told. And speaking to Michelle's experience in terms of telling her story, it's, it was wonderful because it's a testimony. It's, it's, there's an element of, of defiance and, and, and honesty and, and integrity to it that, uh, and sincerity that just broke through. And she's a, such an excellent storyteller. And the story that I, I told... I am, it's true, yeah. <laughs> the story that I told... <laughs> Is, is emblematic of some of the other avenues I wanted to express. It actually isn't from me. It's actually from my father who went to Holland as an exchange student. And it's, an, it's adapted, you know, and paraphrased slightly. But the, the core conceit is there that he made a lifelong friend uh, while he was there. And it gave him a window into understanding how people are different and to embrace and love them no matter what. And he got family out of that. And that thread of family, that familial connection along with love and conciliatoriness is part of that that message of that book as well. And I'm really glad that you guys read it and and came away with hopefully some of that sentimentality to the intent. It's definitely a very powerful and exciting anthology because it's so eclectic and so unified. And I'm curious as editors, as you were putting this together and, and working with writers and working with artists and letterers and, oh my gosh, comics, right? The, the list goes on and on. How did you pull it together? How did you decide what order it went in? How did the pieces, how did you know when you're like, we got it, this is it? Well, I think in any kind of creating, you always have that moment that's like, this is it. I got it. Like, you know, when you got it. 
And I think, like, I think we had like, I went back and looked, I think we had like 40 or so submissions for Color of Always um, mm-hmm. in terms of like how many people sent stories in. And so out of that, we picked, you know, I think about 10. Um, there are, you know, 13 in the book, but some of those were we like we mine, brands, people that, people that we invited in. Um, so to pare that down, we kind of just like took a look very broad overall at every single pitch. And we thought, you know, what, we didn't know what to expect. We, you know, I kind of assumed going into it that we were going to get, you know, a pile of stories that were about coming out about, you know, how people realized, you know, that they're a little fruity and like what they chose to lean into and like how they came out and like stories of rejection upon coming out. I expected it to all kind of be the same. And I think that we were, we were really just pleasantly thrilled with the variety of stories that we got. And I, a lot of the stories that we got were just really beautiful stories about like trans identity. And I wanted to print, wanted to print all of them. Like I was like just very overwhelmed with how personal these submissions were for this because these people were just like pouring their personal stories about like finding love for themselves into this. And it was so moving because they would comment about how they're not given the opportunity to talk about this and how nobody wants to print these stories. And it, it just really struck me that like people just aren't doing this. They're not letting people talk about this stuff. And I feel like it's so important because it's just so beautiful. And I wish that more people like allowed the trans community to like tell these beautiful stories of self-love because I think anybody could find like a way to connect to these incredible stories. And, and, you know, for a book about love, it had, I'd say about half the books had nothing to do with, with romance. No, there's like no romance in it. It's all about like, I love myself. And I was like, love this journey (laughs) for all of you. And and, um, there, but there was a lot of heart and, and, and love and honesty to a lot of that. And yeah, and just to reiterate what Michelle said, there was a lot of gender, transgender, uh, non-binary related and gender fluidity as, as a, as a construct for a lot of these stories so much so that we almost, we, we did want to run them all. We couldn't, but I mean, there's, there's, there was more stories to tell and that's the recurring theme for a lot of what we've been doing so far is how many stories there are to tell. And, and you're, and just to kind of also reiterate again, why I want to do this and why we are doing this is when they, when there is think about, you know, the prevailing, inclusion of gay characters and we'll just stick with sexuality since it's the most pervasive one for just a moment like dc predominantly uh and a little bit of marvel you know for they're trying to when disney allows them to uh has these characters it's all based around who they kissed or who they love which is great fundamentally but it contextualizes the conversation to it being exclusive to those elements of character and every single one of the stories almost, with notable exceptions in our compilation, were opportunities for, for all of the readers. And we hope allies read this too. And that was part of the intent that addresses the whole person. Um, it, it helps people understand where people are coming from when they're trying to figure things out. And that's what we're missing. I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad that so-and-so is bi or I'm glad that so-and-so is, is something else because we need to have those monumental shifts in perception but I, I kind of want to push it a little bit further and, you know, make these people human beings. Uh, and that's what it takes. 
we do an anthology that's called Decoded and something you were just now talking about where you were saying that you have so many that you just wish you could run and you end up not being able to do that. From our experience, I think it's been definitely that you always are going to get way, way more than like, you know, than what you can reasonably print. We do like 30 stories and we still are at a loss like every single year, you know, and being like, it takes hours and hours of talking and like, you know, reading through and everything to kind of make these decisions. So I was curious if you had thoughts on how that kind of comes, how that is like a tangible thing. Like we clearly need way more, you know, space and way more space that can be provided by a mainstream publisher. Right. Which is a big part of why I think maybe independent comics that deal with this stuff or like a Kickstarter project specifically like those are all things that really um i think are so necessary on on top of having mainstream comics do their things as you say michelle what do you think in terms of opportunities that we need that we could what was your what was our takeaway in terms of what more we could do i mean the, unfortunately like i don't know if this is unfortunately or not really like brent and i both have like day jobs right so this like isn't our full-time job like we're not profitable like we're not a non-profit but like Brent and I aren't like getting paid to make comics so like at this point like there's only so much that like the two of us can do and like I wish we were I wish I there was more that I could do I really do um it's difficult because I wish that it was easier for people to get published and I wish that it was easier for people to be able to lend their voice to storytelling in this way but like it's just not something that publishers are they're not super seeking it out in like a authentic way sometimes they they seek out kind of queer representation in like a very sterile way I like to mm. refer to it as sterile and that they like they want it to be very like safe very straight safe and very clean and they don't really want things to be on the unpredictable end um, that might make their straight audience uncomfortable they don't want to make cisgender people uncomfortable so they're not making gay stories with gay voice like gay voices or gay readers in mind they're making gay stories with the straight audience in mind and i think that a lot of media actually falls under that category not just comics so i think i think that the one thing that we really try to do is not think of we think of like our straight audience as like the others like we we other the straight people so like we truly don't care what they think and i will say it on bane to people until i am blue in the face and do not care so i think that like that's what we can do it's like our small piece of this is to be as like rooted to the spot of making stories for the lgbt community from the lgbt community but they don't have to be necessarily like brent was saying earlier it doesn't have to be like the the queerness of it doesn't have to be the point it can be part of it because it's part of who we are but it doesn't have to be the point and i think that that's often what people are expecting in terms of gay stories is that like someone's sexuality or gender is the point of it and not that that's a person and that they have a heart and they have feelings and experiences and those are just as valid and them being gay doesn't take away from you know the pain they feel the happiness that they feel the love that they give and receive so i i think that like that to me is what is important about what we do is that we 
we're really pushing what it means to give those opportunities like without expectations and stipulations against it. I don't know, Brent, if you want to add on to that, I guess. No, it's, it's well said. That's just, it piggybacks on what I was already saying and then articulates it further. I, and in addition, like you mentioned, Sarah, that, you know, there's other anthologies, some of which you were even a part of. Uh, there's a handful of us out there, isn't there? And even with that, I, I, I really don't think, I mean, it, it doesn't tip the iceberg much. And uh, um, a perfect example, we were having a conversation with some of our new um, accepted uh, teams for an anthology we were just starting to put into development coming forward. It's our next project. And someone made the commentary of it, like, listen, I, I'm so happy to be, to be in a zine like this. And, and I know there's a lot of well-produced zines out there, like probably better than the books even I make. But uh, I, I said, well, no, it's not necessarily just a zine. It's like, this is, is going to be an anthology. It's going to be, there's no, and the fan art element isn't part of it. It's just something where you're going to be telling a fully functional, illustrated procedural narrative, isolated only, segmented by genre and context, and we'll be putting it out there with the printer and why it may not, I mean, I know zines are getting, I was, I was informed that zines are getting a lot more elaborate. That's great. But I think that, that 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 presumption that they were doing something underground, even if it looked good, uh, resonated with me on, on a certain note. It's like, I want this to be, and I want to articulate to all the teams that come through here. Like, you are going to be, we're going to have an industry professional doing our covers. We're going to have, we have two teams of published DC and, and like and I, and like IDW and Vault creators. Like, and and you're, you are sharing space with people who have, you know, set the stage before you that they, that broke ground so that we, we can come in as well. But I want that to have, I want it to be new blood. I want it to be established blood to kind of connect that tradition of queer creators breaking into this space. And I wanted that, that, that is the distinctive difference for me. And I want more of that, but I, I think it's just going to require an investment of resources and determination and hope maybe one day we'll get there. But if you don't do it, it doesn't happen. So here we are. Like a really good way, another little point about this is like, I have some of the books at my house right now. I know everybody's super jealous, but like, so I have the books and my mom saw a copy and was like, oh, it's like a real book. Exactly. And I was like, yeah, it is. And like the other day she was like, just talking about how surprised she was that it like looked like a book. And I have no idea. I, I really should prod and figure out like what she was expecting it to look like. But it looks like a trade that you would pick up at a comic book shop. And that's something that's always been really important to us um, is because we want these creators to be able to get their comp copies and for it to feel like they got it from like one of the bigger publishers because the quality is there. Um, Hopefully, I mean, you guys will have to let me know when you get your copies. Um, <laughs> the quality is there. It, it looks like a legitimate book that you pick up at the store. And we were really careful. Like I examined a lot of comic book back covers and like looked at spines and like really painstakingly put a lot of attention to detail and what the book looked like on the outside, on table of contents, on like the like the forward and back matter in the books, like to figure out how to piece this thing together to make it look like you know, to quote my mother, to make it look like a real book. We sent postcards. I did. We, I spent an entire week and a half to two weeks researching from everything from um, various news articles to even like uh, Oprah's book list because there's intersectionality at play as well. That's extraordinarily important. And we make sure there's a diversity element in the teams we select. We want to make sure that we have everyone's voice elevated 
And so we, I, I went out to LA bookshops, the, the POC bookshops, LGBTQIA plus bookshops. We're going to be in 13 stores and or comic book shops from the, from the retail tier alone, because we wanted to make, we wanted to make sure that if we're going to be, I want to pay my creators, but I also want to give them every opportunity that I have the capability of doing of saying that your story is going to be in a store and it's going to be in, a, in front of an audience that wants to see it, that wants to share that experience with others, if not only for themselves, but to propagate it forward and to, and to preserve it in archives, libraries, anywhere else they want to be a part of that. And one of the, one of the first real monumental moments where I realized that I, I was re- reaching somebody on this is when I actually got, um, I think it was the Blue Stockings Collective in Lower East Side in New York, and they, they said they, they were going to carry it. Those people rule. Everybody should support that bookstore. It's really great. I'm a member. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, of course, 100%. I had to. And I was like, I, I've been to learn more about them. But they 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 were so happy to support us. And then, and, but it goes all the way down to like, um, in San, I think it was in Santa Clara, but don't quote me on that. But it's in the, it's in the California, California area. There is a bookstore run by, I believe, two sisters named The Rip Bodice. And all they do is... Uh, uh, romance novels and pulp, but the, the broader pop cultural, you know, ephemera surrounding that as a thing. And they loved our book because I believe either one or both of them are, are LGBT as well. And they wanted in and, and, and it just kept on going from there. And, and so, and nobody, I'm not saying nobody's doing that, but I like Michelle and I got together and I work in marketing as a day job and Michelle works in logistics and, and for retail and, with our kind of brains combined, we're like, what's in a postcard out? Let's hit these places up. And we maximize our own knowledge from our day gigs to really leverage marketing for this process. And that's another thing where I think we could do more. Like a lot of what we do is isolated to social media. I wanted to take it one step further, even if I'm going into like traditional methodologies. And that was rewarding. And that was a hell of an experience as well. Michelle, if you, I don't think you wanted to chime in too. Yeah, I mean, it's those little things. I think you really have to grow this kind of thing like from the ground to prove that it's working. And I think that's part of what we're doing also is proving that it's something that people want. And, you know, our Kickstarter did really well. So I think people, when I talk about it, they're surprised when I tell them how much money we raised. And that's, it's always cool. I love to say it out loud because I love to see the look on people's faces when they hear how well we did. So I mean, we could say it, right? I don't know. It, it feels great. I mean, we made like a little over 39000 on like a $21,000 goal, which is wild to me. And I'm still like really excited about it. And it's so cool that we had that much support. And I, I'm still just overwhelmed and blown away with the support that we got. And I couldn't be happier that like these books are going out into the world and they're going to be in shops and they're going to be in people's hands. And these creators, a lot of whom this is like their first, you know, to quote my mom again, real book, they are going to be able to hold this thing and see it and take pictures of themselves with it and like cuddle with it and feel like really happy to be holding their book. And I'm just like, really, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to give that to people. Uh, do you guys have a question? We can. Yeah, 
I do. Um, so I really like anthologies a lot. And why do you think it was important to do this as an anthology? Because obviously, like bringing in a bunch of people to do something is amazing. I love like short story anthologies. Every book on my library queue right now is an anthology. I think that there's something really special about it because you get to figure out a whole bunch of different people and see things from so many different perspectives in just one book. But is it, do you have a special attachment to the format of anthologies? Like, do you have favorite anthologies that you've enjoyed in the past? Or was this just kind of like, it sounded like awesome. So you did it. Like Brent, do you want me to give like the candid answer? Or Brent, do you want to give like a nice Brentified answer? Well, you give the candid answer and then I'll give you my flowery opinion. How's that? All right. That sounds good. I think that the, the, the Brent, the Brent free version of this even though it's very Brent inspired is that we were kind of watching other people make anthologies and kind of being like, if they can do that, I can do that because that person is a hot mess. And it kind (laughs) of like, and I know that like, that's horrible because you shouldn't compare your creative process to that of someone else. But that's how we all work. I think as humans. And I think that it, it almost was like a joke at first. Like, wouldn't it be cool if we could do something like that? And then sort of just became like, let's just do it. Like the only people stopping us from doing the thing is ourselves at this point. So I think that it was always going to be an anthology. And I think because we, you know, I think just in comic spaces kick around anthology stuff a lot because that's how a lot of indie creators kind of get their feet wet in the comics world. Um, by being a part of anthologies because obviously like you guys do anthologies you probably back a lot of anthologies you see a lot of it around on you know social media and everything but it's obviously easier to promote a book when there's 40 creators in it than when there's two creators because you're bringing in the audience of all of the creators in the book so it's a really wonderful way to boost the names of smaller creators and to get that content out there when you can attach some larger names to the smaller names and they can it all, all kind of works together in this really lovely way of promotion with bringing all of the people's audiences and everybody's family and everybody's friends. And they're all looking at the same campaign. They're all looking at the same book. And I guess like from like a very basic standpoint, that's really where it comes from. But obviously like I love anthologies, like love a short story collection. Mm-hmm. Brent, go ahead and get flowery on me. No, no. Um, uh, I actually agree. And I, you actually reminded me of that. I, I, I will be that shallow bitch and basically say I was, I, I wanted to get in, like, I wanted to get into comic writing. I didn't really get into it until Gail Simone did that um, comic writing school during COVID. And I said, well, heck I could do this. And then somebody gave me a chance or my buddy Fellhound, a fellow comic creator and editor on our, on our team. But, um, I got into an anthology and it was a little bit of a hot mess. And I'm like, well, you know, I work in advocacy and I see all these LGBTQI identifying creators like looking for work and saying, Hey, you know, here's my commission list or, Hey, I got this story idea, but I'm just, you know, dabbling. And I just said, well, I could invite everyone together. And I wrote a poem called the color of always. And I really liked it. It was a poem about perseverance, identity, and I guess walking into a better tomorrow. And I, I, wrote, I wrote poetry for almost a decade before this, and I adapted it into a larger concept. In fact, the first two pages of the book are is my poem broken out into a two-page story as kind of like um, setting the tone, I guess. But speaking a bit more uh, just holistically really quick, 
I uh, also started getting captivated by the idea of anthologies. There was one that called All We Ever Wanted, and um, that's that's me to to a T. Uh, I am I'm aspirational. I believe in a better tomorrow. I I believe in. Uh, I mean, I actually wrote a story. The first story I ever wrote that hasn't been published by anything yet. I, I might be putting it in something one day, but it was actually um, in response to Black Mirror, the show. Um, I know that they've pulled the plug on the show because things were bleak enough as it was. That was one of the reasons I think I was, they said, well, I wrote it because I was just tired of everyone thinking that. I mean, I, yeah, we are in a bad place, but if you keep thinking everything's going to, to go to ruin, it'll go to ruin. And I wanted to envision, a, uh, and I love the idea of a, there being a better tomorrow. So my spin on that is I think that queer voices deserve more representation. I, I, I feel that queer voices should be more than two-dimensional constructs. I think that our stories are being plucked from shelves by people who are either political opportunists or are, real, are actual ardent disciples of hate. And I want to put one book um, back on the shelf and I have the power to do that. And I have the power to take people with me and to have them have the opportunity to see their creativity expressed in the most traditional and pragmatic of ways on, on paper and to preserve it forever. Um, these stories won't go away. I'm like over here, like, see, this is another thing we differ on because I am an ardent disciple of hate and I do not believe <laughs> in a better tomorrow. But like, <laughs> I do believe in the book and I believe in... I believe in like the collection that we put together um, and I, I want to have hope. I'm hopeful that I someday can rediscover Brent's childlike wonder. <laughs> One of the, my story is about a friend that my father made and the gentleman passed away due to complications from AIDS virus. And um, as far as I know, his existence is isolated to the small group of people that knew him and to the, to the, to the relationships that he made his, his footprint in the sand is, is evidenced by the lives he touched. And I just wanted to, I wanted him to exist beyond memory. And that's how I did it. Well, and memory is so powerful. It's such a, uh, it, it, I think it's such a great entree into, I mean, oh God, I'm like into fiction. And like, I know these are based on true stories. However, I believe all writing, all creating is an act of making fiction. Listeners oh, are like, yeah. we get it. Stop preaching at us. Um, <laughs> and I will not, I will be preaching this till they put me in the ground. Um, but you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about the different pieces of the anthology and, and how they play with memory, how they play with truth or truthishness. I will say there's um, I can't remember the name of the story, but there's one about sexual assault that I thought did a really incredible job of, you know, making the hollow this, wolf, Nathan, the hollow wolf. Yeah. That I picked, story. I want, want you to know that I picked up the book and I'm now like, now I'm hugging it. Like <laughs> at, at the me- I just, I love, like, I just have like such a soft spot for like every story. And I just like tears in my eyes, like, Nathan and like so lovely and just that story it's just so much we wanted all the permutations of love even if that means the healing that has to transpire after hurt and after damage uh, that trauma is real and that you somehow sometimes need to learn how to rediscover how to love yourself again and there's a few stories like that breakups hurts multitudes assaults and uh Nathan's story came at us um in such a way, the way the pitch was written, we weren't expecting it to manifest in the way it did, and it was poetic in, an allegor- in its allegory. Are you ready to shop? 
Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hey, what's that noise? Oh, it's Ghost Rider. <laughs> Your favorite and mine. <laughs> vroom, vroom, vroom. Vroom. And then there's a bunch of fire everywhere. Flaming skull head chains, leather jacket, all kinds of cool stuff. So I love Ghost Rider. And anybody who's been listening to this pod, followed me on Twitter, or talked to me in real life probably knows that I love Ghost Rider a lot. And I'll tell you about it. Actually, I will tell you about it on patreon.com slash bitches on comics because I do a somewhat frequent Ghost Rider Corner. And Ghost Rider Corner is where I talk about my fave and hopefully yours, Ghost Rider. You know, from patreon.com slash bitches on comics. So something you said, Michelle, like just really resonated with me, which is like every single story is so unique and so mm-hmm. touching. There's so much heart in this book and there's humor. I mean, I, th- I think got a shout out our editorial coordinator and bud Priya Saxena's story, which is letting it fall. That mm-hmm. story is so cute and sweet. And the art. Oh my God. I was like digging on the like classic comic art styling. That was brilliant. Um, so that, I mean, they're all like that though, right? Like you could, I could tell you why every single story is brilliant. I could tell you something that I love too, Brent, that you mentioned was the intro. I loved that your intro was a comic. I thought that was such a clever way of, like you say, setting the tone for the anthology. And so I think I'm trying to ask a question about, like, you know, how how the pieces come together, how they cohered, how you figured out the order. And, and, you know, those, those, it's easy to talk about, I think, tell me where I'm wrong, folks. As an editor of an anthology, I think it's easy to talk about the selection process because that's a little bit more concrete you know you accept you read you read you accept you deny you move on but 
what about the putting it in the pieces together? What what were you trying to do with the order? What were you trying to do with the way that we weave in and out of maybe more funnier or more sad stories? Um, if it's okay with Brent, I will kick this off. Um, no, I was going to defer to you as on this one. I think like you can almost compare it to like making a playlist where like you want to make that like perfect road trip mix, that perfect, you know, like studying mix the perfect workout mix and you think of it in a way where there's like starts and stops and there's like hills and valleys and you kind of like have to think of the emotions that you feel when you read these stories you have to think of it in the same way when you're putting the order together for an anthology and you kind of have to look at it like I don't want to put I don't want to start the story off with the saddest thing anybody's ever read because that might make them close the book. I don't want to start it with something that's going to make them have to stop and take a breath. Like you really have to keep it flowing. And I think like, I think just like experience from life kind of like drives us to be able to make these choices about like how we want the flow to go. And I think we kind of look at stories in like a way of tone. We think of like, this is a happier story. This is a story that might make people feel a little bit too much. They might have a lot of feelings after it. So we should, after that one, go into something that's like a tiny bit lighter or, you know, try to put stories together that they don't have the same themes, but they might invoke the same types of emotions to like have the the book comfortably flow together because we really want it to be We want people to be able to open it and read the whole thing if they choose to do so. We want it to feel that way. So this is like, this is like our album. This is like how we would pick our track listing of our feelings. And to be honest, like we got on like an editorial call. I remember this because it was probably one of like many editorial meetings that we had had in a very short amount of time. And it was me and Brent and Fellhound and Justin Richards, um, who did Finger Guns with Vault Comics, which is an incredible book. If you haven't read it, everybody should read Finger Guns. Um, mm-hmm. I love Justin. They're amazing. But like, so the four of us are on this editorial call and there's just like lots of talking. Like, we should start with this. We should do this. And Brent, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I'm totally not trying to pat myself on the back here. But I think that what happened is like the three of you were kind of like sidebar trying to figure something out. And I just like sat there in the shared document and like within like five minutes was just like, Man, 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 man. This is the order. We're done. And you were like, actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I uh, just to interject really quick. That's exactly what happened. And I was looking at it, and not only in, in the, the bam, 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 bam. <laughs> to recap, uh, was uh, the thematics. Like there, it was, it was a, it was almost like a like a playlist, like you said, but almost just a song. Like you could see the cadence uh, in terms of ideas of things that have happened to you, things that have happened to others ideas of self, ideas of identity. Um, and it just, they were, they flowed transitionally from one to the next and the tonality allowed for the reader to experience all the various permutations of love without being either overwhelmed, distracted, or frankly bored. It was a very good balance. And it honestly, it, we pieced it together fairly quickly in what order we wanted them to go in. And when we had it, it felt right. And we just didn't, you know, we were like, this is it. And we left it. Yeah. We didn't make any changes from there. It, but we were really familiar with the stories by the time that we decided the order. Like that came very late in the game. Like after we had seen like, I don't know if we had already seen like multiple finished pages. We had read all the scripts. So this wasn't like, we didn't make these decisions 
early on based on the pitches. We make these choices like when we're very familiar with with the creators, when we're familiar with the stories, when we know the story like inside and out, and then we're able to like really make those choices. And so we felt really good about it really quickly. Honestly, I wish wish I could say it was more difficult than making a playlist, but that's all I've got for you. I think most of our monumental strides, and I think, I mean, this is something that um, SEU and Sarah could probably allude to in your own experiences, is that we do better under the gun. And I think a lot of people do than if we were given room to breathe. So there's a combination of things. But when, when we were under that gun, Michelle stepped up and found a way of making it work. And we glanced down at the jigsaw puzzle we assembled and it was there. Yeah, I, I think for us, uh, well, you know, this year, the Incredible Priya actually laid out the order for Decoded. And she sent it to me for approval. And I was like, well, we're done here. <laughs> Let's keep moving. So I really relate to the back and forth between you, Michelle, and Brent. <laughs> 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 I think that's really funny where you're like, well, I just know how to call it when it's good. You know, like I'm not going to tinker with something that doesn't need it. Right. I think that's like a creator thing. Like, you know, when you got it, like when, when you yeah. read something that you wrote and it's right, you know that it's right. And you, when you when it's wrong, you know it's wrong. So I think it's just about being honest with yourself. Yeah, yeah. And I think that um, there's this interesting thing that happens. And I, I it, it sounds like this is the case for you all, but let me know if I misinterpreted anything. But where it's like it's we're looking at the pieces as individuals and we're looking at it as a whole puzzle that is coming together. And that kind of takes working with different parts of your brain at the same time. It's almost like a Schrodinger's anthology. It both is its own story and it is only a part of a whole. And I think that's a kind of an interesting space to be in. It's actually a really creative space. But I do agree with the idea that the pressure really helps you get it together. Sarah and I have learned that year after year after year <laughs> that it really, we need those deadlines. We need them and that'll help us hit them. Um but yeah, I mean, I think it's a really cool process. You know, something I wanted to hear about, and, and again, if I missed it, let me know. My dog did decide to scream a lot, so I had to like go figure out what was happening. But I would love to hear about the actual process of editing the scripts and sort of providing feedback there and ha what that looks like working with the writers and to what degree you did actually do editing work at that point. I actually want to divide that into two things. You might be asking this after the fact, um, the second part, and I think, and I want Michelle to answer all of that, uh, was the layout. I think we actually had more work in layout and correcting elements of production than we did in the actual script revisions. We were very happy with a majority of the core scripting. We, we might have been lucky in that we had people that understood the basics of scripting. So most of the revisions that I recall were were incidental, grammatical, typo, um, and, and, and the other kind of changes we had were actually post-art, at least during the art conceptualization phases, like brand items. I think one story had a Netflix logo. We had like, and then also just orientational things. Yeah, I have this, there's sort of like a joke around um, like editorial where I just say Michelle from this other department. So I'll be like, Michelle from legal thinks that we need to tone down the Netflix logo where Michelle from production needs to move this speech level further away from the edge of the page and it's all just me but like it's like just a bit of a joke um but that's definitely correct we did kind of we were really light-handed on editing the scripts they were all really lovely um we did have some edits and we worked very individually like with the creators and 
we're very careful not to try to like influence the content in a lot of ways because these, I mean, like we didn't want to be rewriting stories for people. We didn't want to like make the message that the creator was trying to tell. We didn't want to like tone down what they were trying to say. So there were some, you know, little things like, I think we had some questions about like removing song lyrics, some questions about like something written on like a graphic t-shirt, just like little things. But for the most part, you know, a little bit of dialogue revision, but um, for the most part. There was one story where I think we were running the danger and I would love to compare notes with you guys on that is that um, um, was the, um, we were, we were getting dangerously, well, I was getting dangerously close to writing the story for them. Yeah. Not in and not in like it was still their story, but I just I think they were there was a deferential note where it's like, no, no, you, you have the right idea. I don't want to put the words in your mouth, but this is where I think the direction of the narrative should lead. And I think that was the that was the only real section I think that could be construed to have difficulty. Yeah. And then there were a few situations where, you know, we could tell that maybe people were trying to condense to um, keep more content on like a page and we, you know, encourage them to open it up a little bit and let, let the deeper moments like have more room to breathe. Um, And I think, you know, I mean, like, honestly, having like a 10 page cap on an anthology story is quite long. And we kind of did that to ourselves in terms of production costs and time and pain in my specific ass. And I think Allowing people to have that room to tell the stories, I think encouraging them to use the space that we provided also was like a helpful editorial tip in a little bit. Like for a few of the stories where we we said, why don't you carry that over to another page so you can give it more space? Like, you know, it was really just like general notes and and more just mm-hmm. trying to to be collaborative with the creators because it was really important to us that they felt like these stories were were their own and the way that they wanted them to be. Yeah, I mean, that 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 is exactly how we approach things. So, I mean, yeah, I, I totally hear you on that. Like, we th- we think about it, and we do a lot more prose. So, like, there's a lot more editing, as you might imagine, because it's like, oh, these paragraphs, and, uh, you know, you know what stories are. Why am I describing what a story is to you? Um, but we really approach it with that same mentality of like, this is a collaborative effort and there's no way any desire on our part to change your message, add things that you don't want in there, change the way your characters talk. And I think that's really important too, because, you know, Sarah, myself, and then our colleague Monica, who couldn't be here today, we're the editors for it. But, you know, Sarah and I are both white. And that doesn't mean that most of our creators are. We have lots of creators of all kinds of different backgrounds and different ethnicities and different races. And so we truly, really try to see, like, what is the story you're telling? What are you specifically telling? And how can we help you execute that by doing exactly what you say? Let's give it 500 more words. Okay, let's cut 500 words. You know, and and finding that sort of... um, you can't see me, but I'm sort of, you know, moving my hands closer and then further apart and like kind of the <laughs> sort of the breathing space, you know, of like the creative process. And I think, you know, I'm obviously an editor and so I'm a huge believer that we all need editors, but I think your best editors aren't aren't changing your work for you. The best editors are helping you find the heart of your work and making sure Precisely. it comes across. Right. And that's like how I, that's definitely like how I approach editing. I don't, I'm not trying to like, 
write stories for people. I'm more trying to like, I'm very like collaborative in my editing, like both for Color of Always and then like other projects that I'm working on outside of our Extra Pages Press stuff. It's very much just like, let's just have a conversation. Sometimes I'm like, can you get on a call and can we look at your script together? Because like sometimes like, I won't really understand what's happening, but like they will explain to me what is happening. And then I'm like, oh, I didn't read it that way. Let's just word it like a tiny bit different. Like I'll explain how I saw it. And then like, Mm -hmm. so it's editing for someone isn't about putting your stamp on it. It's about helping the creator get it to be the best that it can be in their own words from their own mind. Like sometimes people just need, they need like somebody to hold their hand to prom. And that's fine. And that's mm-hmm. like, that's the point. The point isn't me trying to put my name all over somebody else's experience. It's me trying to guide that person to get where they want. They get their story where they, where they want it to meet, be what, where they dream that it can be. And I, I just want to encourage people to, to get to that point. That's important. To put a bow on it too. Um, we got there with that story and it was probably the most rewarding thing in the world. And we were we weren't, we weren't, we came with no expectations. And when we saw the final product, we were, we were stunned and we were proud of the creator for finding their footing and actualizing the story they were trying to tell because they told it and it was really good. Yeah. It's really rewarding when you like almost just like nudge people in the right direction to find, you know, the right way to tell a story and the right way to like make something feel the most authentic to them. And you can tell when the creator is excited about what it is that they're putting out. And it's, you know, especially just being, you know, indie comics, like we're not a big publisher. So we're not, we don't have these like outside worries and outside influence that are coming in on our projects. So there's really no reason to like rework something if it doesn't follow the vision of the creator, because like that would sort of invalidate everything that we stand for like to try to overwrite almost like as an editor talking over the creator, like that would feel, it just feel wrong. And I think it's, tell me where I'm wrong, but I think it's also a fundamentally queer approach to editing. And a, and for me, a trans approach to editing, which is I don't come with a knowledge of you. I don't come with a knowledge of what your story should be. I come with a curious and open mind and questions. And like, I've suggested edits where people are like, no, this is what it means. And I'm like, oh yeah, don't do my edit, please. Please don't make the edit. You're right, I was wrong. I just misunderstood the moment. Because guess what? I'm a person. <laughs> you know? like, exactly. Yeah. No, you're right. Storytelling is born out of your own experience. I mean, that's literally, uh, we, we color our stories with the nature of who we are and what we've been through. And I think, and I, and I, you know what, I, I will say that. I will I will go out and say that I think working exclusively with and by LGBTQIA plus creators, um, I think there's an advantage to that because yes, we are we are on a, on a journey where we're uh, figuring things out constantly, but that's the human experience. But moreover, there is a fundamental and overwhelming generally sense of who you are and where you stand. And that gives you wondrous uh, access to imagination, to possibility, and to a sense of self that allows you to paint a picture with as much or as little guidance as you might need. And I, it's it's a luxury that I am I readily embrace as part of the mandate I follow of trying to raise these voices up. I just know that like 
a lot of these creators like had said that they've been looking for a space to tell these stories. Mm-hmm. So it it was like obvious to us that, you know, other editors might have seen it and said, I you know, you should change this, you should change this, you should change this. And, you know, that's not ever our approach. <laughs> like it really just is, you know, like you said, like sometimes you misunderstand what they're trying to say and you have a quick conversation and you get there. And it's just like, mm-hmm. no, I wasn't reading it correctly. So you're right. Don't do my edit. And I think that's part of being a good editor is knowing when the edit actually doesn't make sense and pull back on it. And it's important to admit that, I think. 100%. You know, there's something else you keep saying, and and then I'm going to not, I'm going to let Sarah ask some more questions, which is, you know, this lifting up piece. And I think that there's this real, there's, it's undeniable that as editors, there's some gatekeeping, right? We're the people who choose what stories get published or don't, what, what comics make it in or don't in these instances. But I think there's also something to be said for the fact that when we choose to create in the ways that you all have with Color of Always, we have with Decoded, it's actually about being, I'm going to say cheerleaders. It's about being gate openers. It's about being being people who say, you fucking rule. Because there are people who have sent us their stories and been like, this is a piece of shit, but read it anyways. (laughs) We're like, okay, can I offer you some gentle coaching? Which is like, please don't tell me your work is a piece of shit when you send it to me. (laughs) Because you're actually influencing how I'll perceive it. But, you know, we've come back and been like, no, actually, you're not a piece of shit. Your work isn't a piece of shit. And actually, we're ecstatic about publishing it. So we we believe in you. And then some of those people, and and Sarah and I were just talking about this. um, Actually, I was like, no, we weren't talking about it. I read an interview Sarah did. And she said in the interview that like we've been this this we've helped people and I know you two have as well helped them sort of have this launch pad where they can jump from here to somewhere else where they one of our the first people we published has a book coming out in January and it's it's couldn't be more exciting and and it just feels like you know and and also we also publish people who are super established and have several books behind them you know but it's there's something really special about being in that environment where it's some people know more about this or have more experience about this, but we're all in it together. And our job is to make sure that you are successful. And that's really beautiful. I was going to say, like, we talk a lot about, like, having a seat at the table. And if you can't find one, you just make your own table and then invite other people to sit at it with you. Or the idea that, like, once you climb up a ladder, instead of removing the ladder, you, like, hold it for the next person or put another ladder down so that more people can come up. And I think that it really just is about like what that's part of advocacy for us is doing our bit to like make sure that we provide some opportunities for people simply just because we like to help people and we want people to be happy. And there's really nobody that's a bigger cheerleader for every single story in this book than the two of us. Like (laughs) I... I'm obsessed with every person in this book. I like back all their projects and will pre-order all of their books and tell them all how much I love them. And it's constant. It's just like, you are my family now and everything that you do, I will support you. And if you need anything, you tell me and I will help you and I will defend you against mean people on Twitter and I will do literally whatever you need because it's like, I feel like I know a lot about them from learning who they are through the process of making this book. And I couldn't be more proud of every single person that had a hand in this. And I couldn't be more proud to like be able to present this collection 
mm-hmm. with Brent to the world to be just like, these are my kids. I'm so proud of everyone. And I'm just, right. it's, it came out so wonderful. And I, I can't wait for people to see it. I'm like emotional thinking about the fact that all of these people that I know are in this book. And it's like a book that my name is literally on the cover. It's literally my book. And I'm over here like, I can't believe my friends are in this book. <laughs> and I'm really excited about it. You know, that that's actually a really good point. I think something that Michelle and I have a really hard time with is um, I think we both forget that our names are on the book. I mean, we're so worried about everyone else. Um, they are a family. I I don't want to like infantilize anybody, but these are our kids. And, and, and for a large part of the demographic that we've allowed into the books, they are younger than us. Um, but it doesn't matter what age you are or who you are. They are our kids and they, and we've, we've called us comic moms, you know, and, and we are their cheerleaders and we have a, we have a private discord server. That's just for the people that have gotten into color of always. And we've just added for this, I guess you could almost say like the next class uh, for the submissions for the next anthology. They're, they're in there now too. And we're creating channels for everybody, but we have a commons area and only people that have been part of our projects so far have access to this discord. It's just part of like an alumnus kind of a thing. And you can be yourself there. I know we say, we talk about safe spaces and we talk about areas where you're allowed to express yourself and have agency and power where you stand. Well, this is our little 10 feet of space. And, and I guess to kind of bring it all together, um, there have been one or two instances where we've had creators who may not be fully out in one segment or another, depending on, how they express themselves or where their identities are. And they've said something along the lines of, uh, I'm happy to be able to contribute to the community that I love and that I identify with, but I'm not, I can't actively be a part of in some element of my life. And, um, and I just said to them, you know, you are a part of the community because you're here and, and when you're ready, we'll support you in that journey as well as the journey that you're undertaking now and, and, creating something and in, in, in us being able to put it in print. And um, th- that that's basically what drives me to do this more than anything. And I think like, it's a very, it's so personal to like lift queer voices. It's personal to me, it's personal to Brent and it's personal, I think to anybody to have somebody that you feel is in your corner. So I think it's like, I want to be available to anybody that I'm working with in any capacity. I want them to feel comfortable working with me. I want them to feel like I'm their champion. Like I will do whatever they need and help them do whatever it is that they want to do. And it's not so much like I'm not looking at them. Like I I joke that they're like my kids, they're my friends. And like, I would do this for like any of my friends. I would, you know, you, you show up for your friends, you put your friends work on blast and you tell people how great it is. And I think Mm -hmm. like, that's part of it, part of running an anthology and like, working with a large group of people, especially a group of people that, you know, has been marginalized and group of people that has been, you know, othered, like they're shoved into a corner or, you know, hired because they need to put a gay person in the book. And you want to make them feel like front and center all the time. So to me, making these books, like lifting these voices, isn't necessarily just about giving them a space to tell the story. It's Mm -hmm. about like encouraging them that like it means something that they're telling the story, that it means something to me, that I'm proud of them for doing it, that I'm proud to tell people that they're a part of it, that I'm proud of their work. I'm proud to show off little fan art that they do because I believe in what they do and I want them to feel 
happiness in every aspect of creating and even every aspect of life. Like if you made a really cute loaf of bread, like I want to see it and tell you how (laughs) cute it is. Like, I just, I feel like that's part of lifting people up is just like being supportive and listening. And if you lift up somebody in the tiniest of ways, like that builds up over time and they gain that confidence to go and do other projects. And, you know, they'll never forget what it feels like to have somebody you know, be proud of them, somebody in their corner. So I just want to be that for people. Watching them uh, find that confidence and and um, go off into other ventures, some of their own volition where they make their own spaces like we did for them is, I mean, I guess words fail beyond that point. Every single year, we've done Decoded for three years straight. And every single year, I feel like I learned something new about myself. And I also learned something new about the team that I work with. And I also learned something new about what the process of creating Decoded specifically is, which I don't think is the same as the process of creating almost anything else. Uh, Was there anything that you learned about yourself or about each other where you were just thinking about, oh, this is like how this will click better or something along those lines? Because I feel like there's times where I'll look at myself and be like, wait, why are you doing it this way? Like you should be doing it (laughs) like it's so much easier to cut this and this and this out. Or, you know, like learning the process of communication with a team is always like kind of an ongoing process, right? in a way that I think is good because it helps you all grow together. But it's like, you know, you look back at like decoded year one and it was like all just like the excitement of doing it. And then you kind of go and it's like, Oh, well like refining your process and like getting better about like every part of it and things like that. So was there anything like that for you all? I mean, we're living it right now. The latter of those two things, Michelle. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I would definitely say we're in refining mode right now. I think we are definitely taking a lot of experience from Color of Always um, for our next anthology, just in terms of, like you said, wrangling a bunch of creators, like communication with them, um, remembering all the information that we overall had to gather from people and trying to like, instead of sending out four Google Forms for people to fill out, trying to like put it all in one and only fill out one, just like on a very simple level, things like that. But I think like, even in terms of like organizing the discord, in terms of like trying to put deadlines together and like, you know, down to like, we have like a very simple contract that like we workshopped with our group last year. And it was like a very, it was a very difficult process of like making a contract. Um, but now that that's like sort of done, we just revised it to be specific to the next project. And since we had like 30 people's feedback on it, I hope we'll be good to move forward. Um, I don't know. I think for me personally, the biggest things that I learned really were just procedural, um, boring kinds of things, budgeting, spreadsheets, um, working with printers, uh, making a print file in Adobe InDesign and like learning how to use Adobe InDesign and, you know, dabbling a little bit and like, I relate to that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It was ugly. It was ugly. (laughs) 
Oh yeah, year one we had a designer who laid out everything, and then they they weren't available, but they they left us their design. Like, thank God, there's no way I could have created one from scratch. And so I, every year I have to be like, now in design, which one is that one, and how do I use it? So sorry, I just had to jump in with that. No, I feel no. Logistics. you're right. I have been. I, I was very it. public about my fight with the print file. <laughs> um, I was constantly on Main just like crying about me versus the print file like round 27 and like it was it was really difficult I just taught myself how to do it watching YouTube videos and playing around and I don't have a background like graphic design is my passion in Microsoft Paint like I do not have a background in graphic design I do not really make art um I do my best and I've definitely learned a lot um, from feedback from artists, uh, which I take very seriously. Anytime somebody like looks at a design they made and says, you know, it would look better if you aligned it this way, I always try what they tell me to try because I trust people that actually do this and I appreciate their feedback. And I definitely like bothered my artist on color of always Tench, whom I adore. I definitely bothered her a lot with like, will you look at this? Can I tell you a screenshot? Will you tell me if this looks bad? Like, can you just for a second? And like, she's a wonderful human being and super, super patient and was always really encouraging and gave me really great feedback. Um, so I really just like appreciated feedback from artists during my struggle with the print file. And I did, I mean, we eventually got there, but not without a lot of like blood, sweat and tears along the way. Um, but I definitely, I've learned so much. Yeah. I mean, that, I'm glad I'm glad you asked that because Michelle really needed to talk about that because that was a journey and a half. And I mean, obviously we're I mean, kindred spirits. I could talk about making the layout for this book for like six or seven hours and I still wouldn't have said everything that I have to say about it. So like, I'm just going to kind of leave it at that. It was difficult. It was a struggle. If you're <laughs> thinking about making an anthology, hire a designer. <laughs> Well, yeah, hire a designer like, slash pay, layout. Pay a person um, from the LGBTQIA plus community to do your layout <laughs> for your book. Um, worth the money, I think. Yeah. Not the place Listen to more. cut a corner. Don't don't follow Brett and Michelle's example. Oh, and also, how, I mean, how much could be... a layout cost, Michael? Twenty dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, just weeks of my life. <laughs> It was, oh it was, it was literally the worst. And, <laughs> um, and it was so, and that doesn't even count like the printer. And then but I, wrestling. Mean, like, I mean, like you guys saw the PDF, right? Like it looks good, right? Yeah. Like, Nailed it. it. Nailed, Nailed it. it. I actually, I wonder if this happened to you, Michelle, now that I've laid things out, it's like when I, when I first planted my own garden, I started looking around and I was like, damn, people are putting in so much work. And it was stuff I just, you know, you just saw the flowers. And I was like, oh, fuck, they're flowers. Who cares? Nice, but then I, I planted my own flowers and I was like, this is extremely difficult. And that is exactly how I feel about the layout. It's like I couldn't see it before. But this one, I was like, I was looking at the blank pages going, that's a good blank page. That looks real <laughs> good right there. They did a good job with this blank page. Thank you. You know what I mean? Like, it looks good. So Honestly, I just had to holler. Thank you. No, and like, nobody has has seen it yet so it's like i've done all this work i've like cried all these tears and like it's still not really out there so i can't really be like yeah it was really hard work but like look how good it looks because like nobody has seen it yet so supposedly it shipped supposedly shipping. it was supposed to start shipping today 
So cards on the table. Like we we went we partnered with White Squirrel. On yeah, we're working with White Squirrel um, so, for distribution. They're wonderful um, because like there's way too many packages for Brent and I to be able to get all of those out ourselves. Okay, there's yeah. too many. We should talk about that too. Maybe we don't have enough time, but like we went a little too hard to the paint on extras and tchotchkes. Yeah. But, but Lord, it was fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we regrets, regrets later. Re- though. I regret it all, but like it all came out really good. Yeah. So I guess it is time to ask about the next project. You have another anthology coming up. I can understand if you can't talk too much about it, but I'd we love can. to just hear what your, um, what the motivation behind it was and kind of how it's going, I guess. I will introduce the name and Michelle, I think we should talk about how we got to the name and we can, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, the next thing that we just picked our, I guess we just picked our new teams uh, literally last night uh, and the anthology is called Sharp Wit and the Company of Women and uh, Sword Ladies, martial women, women with agency and power in a, in a martial capacity. And it could be any genre, any implementation from there. But I, I think you probably probably tell the story of how we got there better than me, though. I honestly, I think it was like three o'clock in the morning. And I think that like, I probably like, I don't, I, I don't know what state of mind I was in. I'm assuming it was something altered. And we were just kind of like talking about, we were, we were also throwing around um, doing a horror anthology. I know like, I don't yes. really like horror, but we wanted to do like campy, like gay horror we thought could be fun. Um, the price of always. The price of always. <laughs> and that was sort of like my joke during Color of Always was that like, I actually have a screenshot somewhere of a conversation where Brent said, if we do a horror anthology, it can be called The Price of Always. Um, but the idea was sort of to do like campy horror um, because horror comics are like super in right now. Um, so when when it came down to like picking what, what we do next, it was horror or sword girls. And I mean... I'm like really online. So like I see, you know, sore girls are sort of like, (laughs) everybody is sort of like into sore girls. Like I am into sore girls. I'm like, oh, a woman with a weapon, please stab me. And like, I really feel like that's sort of like a mood. And I think Mm -hmm. like, we were kind of just like, we really connected with the idea of like getting stabbed by like a hot lady. And like, I was just like really moved by the premise of like, yep you know, getting stabbed by a hot lady that like, I think that's where we moved organically. And so the company of women, because we want, we were kind of trying to own the fact we go heavy on the, uh, on the femme side a little bit, uh, almost with color of always. We we did branch off uh, and make sure we diversified more, but we wanted to lean into it. Why not lean into it for the thematic? And it's okay. Sword ladies. And I think I said company of women and you said sharp wit. And then we kind of rammed them together. Uh, yeah, we had like some really hilarious names that we had workshops. Like, <laughs> I think like one of my favorite ones, like some of them sounded like really bad, like fan fiction titles. So like we really had a good time with that. But like with one of my friends um, on Twitter, uh, I'm going to shout out Sunflower. Like one of my rejected Sharpwit story titles was the the taste of steel and we've sort of decided that that's like a really bad like supergirl lena luther fan fiction title so if anybody would like it it's yours and then dm me <laughs> at serial pancake on twitter once you've written it i really like fluff and like emotional you know hurt comfort so hashtag supercorp forever the taste of steel it's yours you can have it 
Yeah, I'm I'm just a raging sapphic, so I mean, we was down for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I saw what it was themed, I was like, brilliant, brilliant. People will eat this up. It's very exciting. It's exciting. Do you have any sense of the timeline for us? Yes, sure. we do. In fact, I'm like, please let me take this because Brent will give you the wrong dates. Very oh, I'll, I'll be so wrong. I'll give you approximations <laughs> in the most confident way possible. Brent will give you like the most confident answer and it'll be so wrong. <laughs> and I'll be like, what are you doing? Um, oh, so currently right now, like, like Brent said, we just kicked teams like over the weekend. We just alerted teams last night. Um, Timeline-wise, we're going to be running the campaign. The estimated campaign runtime is September 20th through October 20th. And to overlap with New York Comic Con was the game plan. Um, simply because I'm going to be there running around with some kind of promo material, yelling at everybody about women with swords. And I hope that will be well-received on the con floor. I'm sure it will. If it isn't, I have a suspicion that it will. I think we'll do okay. I'm really excited. I might, you know, I'm excited. So I think that that was our like reasoning behind the timeline. Um, We're going a little bit shorter on stories than we did for Color of Always to try to like give people more room um, without feeling rushed in terms of how quickly we need a turnaround. but I'm really excited about some of the people in this book and in the new one coming out. We haven't announced like big names publicly yet. So I'm not going to say, you know, who's attached to it. Um, But I mean, Brent and I each have a story in it. Um, Fellhound, who's one of our editors will have a story in it. And so will Justin Richards, um, who's our other editor. Um, So I'm excited that we'll all get to play in the sandbox this time. Um, the only ones that we've leaked so far that are already out is Danny Lore and Skylar Patridge. Did we leak we that? A, we did. Or did you I do think. it just now? Um, well, I'm like, yay. I'm like, <laughs> like clutching my pearls. Like, I'm like, oh, they're gonna do it. They're, I'm they're not. I'm not mentioning it. anything else. I just thought um, Danny was safe. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited for it. Though it's gonna be really cool. It sounds like it's going to be amazing. We can't wait to hear more and obviously be in touch. Let us know how we can be supportive. We'd love to have you back on the pod. We've also reviewed some of Fell's work as well because Fell rules. So, um, you know, it feels like very much the Bitches on Comics family and the the Extra Pages Press family. we got a Venn diagram. It's just going to keep getting... It's a circle. One day it's just going to be a full circle. And that's what we live for. Um, I would love to ask if you all would just share maybe some information about where people can learn more about Extra Pages and then about each of you online. And if you want to share social media, that's absolutely great. Um, Michelle, do you want me to take that? Or? Yeah, go ahead. Talk about okay. extra pages. Go. Okay. Well, well extra. Well, I'm just kind of give you the cliff notes. We decided to uh, codify our endeavor of raising and lifting voices, as we discussed all uh, this evening, with uh, by calling ourselves Extra Pages Press. <coughs> you can find us at Extra Pages Press on Twitter, Extra Pages Press on Instagram, and we have a new website where eventually, hopefully, by possibly Flincom or maybe a bit later we'll be you'd be order uh, additional copies of color of always once we open our shop but you can also learn a little bit more about us about our uh, sharp wit and company women on that site and uh i think that's kind of the long and short of it you can find me at uh carol collector on twitter and carol collector on instagram because i am still the carol danvers collector and uh yeah michelle 
I've totally lost my train of thought. But yeah, that's where you can find extra pages. Um, my Twitter handle, I, you know, like I said earlier, I'm very online. I'm on Twitter a lot. Um, shit posting and talking about Kate Bishop. Um, my Twitter handle is Cereal Pancake, like the two superior breakfast foods. Um, spelled exactly like the breakfast foods. And that is my Twitter handle because I like breakfast. That's it. And I, you know, have my work with Color of Always out and you'll be able to buy that soon. Like Brent said, I also have, Brent and I actually both have a short comic in the Rowverse with Fellhound mm-hmm. that are both out right now. Um, those can be read for free on twitter.com and very excited if you, you know, want to go check those out. They're pretty cool. Free. Mm-hmm. Commander Rao comics. Um, and, you know, I'm looking forward to SWAT cow. That's what we call it. And small yeah. circles is SWAT cow because that's what Sharpwit and the company of women spells out SWAT cow. Um, we, I'm also very disappointed that we didn't get any pitches related to farming, but that's for another day. Or cows. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We were really hoping for at least I one. I was hoping for at least one. We didn't get any, but yeah. Um, at Cereal Pancake on Twitter is the best way to find me. Um, I love talking about comics and art and and Kate Bishop. Kate Bishop. <laughs> well, we have we have much in common then. <laughs> we also love talking about Kate Bishop. Oh, Perfect. So. Um, did we That's miss any Disney. of your questions? <laughs> no, no. I mean, you all have been incredible. You know, I'm I'm just super grateful for your time today and. Um, I think actually you two may actually be the winners now of the most reschedules of anyone. <laughs> um, we keep that in mind because it just you you all get it. It's like this 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 life, this life of being a, a writer and editor and creator and then you know having another job. You know, yeah. sometimes the pieces take a while to come together. <laughs> but we have was the last one Stan Stanley it because was I Stan. remember we rescheduled with Stan Stanley and then it turned out to be one of my favorite interviews that we did so there's a lot of pressure on you all hopefully this holds up just kidding like, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. you're like those people with the farming anthology I don't know I don't know I don't know and about like, that it was a total <laughs> vegan sausage fest. It was a total <laughs> vegan really sausage fest. Total fed. vegan sausage fest, yeah. You know, and That's if I'm going to go to a sausage fest. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Michelle, Brent, thank you so much for being here today. You have been delightful. You've made me laugh. You've made me cry. I love your anthology. I love your publishing house. I will be buying everything that you produce. Thank you for fighting for queer voices and trans voices and creating a space for us where we don't have to, you know, perform for a cishet audience. We are huge fans of that here. Uh, Both Sarah, myself, Monica, Kate, we believe in the power of our stories and what we have to tell. And so it's a gift to get to bring this interview to our, our listeners. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. We are always grateful for you. Um, make sure to, you know, Patreon and then rate and maybe some reviews and maybe you tell your grandma, but don't tell your grandma about us. She's not going to be into it. Uh, but, you know, like, no, tell she your other will. friends. You know what? She might be. She might be. Sarah you know, does no. make a lot of classic movie references. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I'm just like... Just every yeah, lighting like, up the Tippy Hedron, and, doing my and best. I'm like, what? Yeah, <laughs> you're like the birds. I have is lesbian. to say, <laughs> I'm like mm-hmm. the birds is very lesbian. A yeah. podcast for another day, and or also <laughs> this podcast. 
<laughs> oh, God. Kate, thank you for making us sound amazing. Sarah, you put a smile on my face. I am grateful for you. Monica, we love you. Sorry you couldn't be here with us today. We'll catch you on the next one. And again, thank you, Brent, Michelle. Thank you to everyone in The Color of Always. What an incredible anthology. Please go pick it up as soon as you can. Uh, we will be sharing in the show notes all of the stuff that was mentioned, the websites, the Twitter handles, what have you. So if you didn't have a pen out, don't stress. You can check that all off again in the show notes and make sure you go pick up your copy of Color of Always. Thank you for listening to Bitches on Comics. We are a bi-weekly podcast where we talk to your favorite comics and pop culture creators and critics about what matters to them in comics and pop culture, as you might have guessed. You can follow us on Twitter at at Bitches on Comics and on Instagram at at Bitches on Comics. Our website is, brace yourself, bitchesoncomics.com. If you go there, you can listen to any of our episodes and we've got other shit that we put on tabs. I don't remember what it is. I am in charge of updating the website, however, so good luck. Thanks for the heads up. I'll go to this website now. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at se underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.